good morning, Watermark friends. It is awesome to be with you. I am sorry that we're not here together. This is week four of us not being able to gather because we're trying to love our neighbors by uh, sheltering in place and making sure while we have no idea who's got this contagion called the coronavirus that we are um, honoring uh, not just um, our God and our King, but one another. Uh, in the way that we are choosing to gather. It is great to be with you. I know that there's some friends that are dipping in for the first time. My name's Todd, and uh, I'm part of the team here at Watermark, and it is um, always a privilege to get to spend time with you in this way. We have been um, working our way through a, a book of the Bible that if you're, if you're new to the Scripture, sometimes you hear things and you're kind of like, what, what, what in the world does that book particularly mean. Um, the book is called Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. There's two letters written to them, but here's what I want to show you. God's word is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's always useful. I mean, we, um, we don't believe that we have to read some holy book so we look holy or so that we appease God. We believe God's done everything for us that we need to be reconciled to him, and what we're reading here is God's revelation. God has pulled back the veil to show us things that he wants us to know so that we can be reconciled to him uh, in mind, not just by faith through the finished work of his son on the cross, but we might be um, one with him in, in mind and in spirit. And so we study God's word because God is a loving father who is desperate to show us the path of life. Well, um, let me just start by praying for us. Uh, we're, we're, we're just so glad you're here. And uh, we really hope that you join us next week and invite your friends. Next week, we're going to do um, what we typically do on certain holidays is we make our service a little tighter just so some guests that maybe uh, don't typically join us can, can just get the one thing we want to lay on them. Today, in days like this, we study for you know, a little bit of an extended period of time. But next week, um, our service will be right around an hour and there's going to be all kinds of opportunity and all kinds of assets we're going to send to you to invite your friends to be with us next week. But let me invite you right now to do what wise men always do, and that is to lean in when God is trying to speak to them. And I just want to remind you, you'll never want to know God's will more than he wants to reveal it to you. You don't have to um, climb some mountain and hope you run into the right swami uh, with all your stuff on some yak and some Sherpa leading you up there. God is screaming at you and trying to get your attention because he loves you. God loves you. And I know some of you are living in a world that go, it doesn't look like God loves me. Some of you might be in homes where there's abusive speech or even abusive people, um, not just speaking at you, but in their physical interactions with you. And it can feel like God doesn't love you. You can feel like this world does nothing but abuse you and leave you um, scared. So first thing I would tell you is, please raise your hand, reach out. Um, do everything you can to let others know that it's not as it should be in your home. But this isn't ultimately any of our home. And it's not as God intended that it should be um, on this earth. And so the scriptures explain to us why we are where we are in a world filled with pandemic, pandemics and problems. And it's because of this thing called sin. And it's why we make war against sin. And it's why we, who have come to know that God is not somebody to be managed or appeased, but God is somebody to be enjoyed. It's why we seek him all the more. Because we know that the more that we um, reacquaint our hearts to God and, and learn his ways, the more useful we will be to him. We also know that there's nothing that we can ever do that would make us holy in his sight, except believe in his gracious provision. That's the good news. If you're just tuning in, I want to tell you, we don't believe we need to work our way to God. We believe God has crashed into our world and demonstrated his love for us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. One of the reasons I'm so excited about next week is it is a week that almost everybody um, leans in. Like, what's this big Christian celebration called Easter? Well, those of us that are members of Watermark and parts of Jesus' true church all around the world, we celebrate Easter all the time. And we celebrate who our God is all the time and that he has made provision for us that we can know him and enjoy him. Uh, but next week in the message, I'm going to have a few little shorts and resources that I'll show and then I will give to you afterwards 
for you to take little clips, one minute messages, minute and a half messages, just to share out to others in a very creative way. So look forward to that. But today, here is the one minute clip. God loves you. He's not upset with you in the sense that um, he understands what it is to be tempted. We believe that um, Jesus, who is the visible image of the invisible God, has been tempted in every way as we have been. Jesus and God came and walked on this earth and was tempted, yet without sin, so that God could make him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin on our behalf, that we, by faith in God's provision of Jesus, might become the righteousness of God in him. If you are still confused about how to be reconciled to God, let me in this next 20 seconds tell you how to do that. It's by just acknowledging that your sin and the pandemic of your rebellion and all human rebellion on earth is what causes every bit of trouble as a result of our being pulled away from God. And yet God has run to you and through the cross of Jesus Christ, he has made a way through you to believe that the wrath of God has been satisfied by pouring it out on his son that you might be forgiven if you acknowledge your need and trust in his grace. That is good news. When you understand that God loves you enough to die for you before you do a single thing for him, all you do is acknowledge your sin. And you know, the wages of your sin is death, separation from the God who is life. And that his free gift is eternal life. Then you put your trust in him and then you seek him with all of your heart. That's what we're gonna be talking about today. Let me pray for you and with you and we're gonna dive in. Father, thank you for a chance just to be reminded of why we want more of you because you are good and every good thing on earth is from you and every pandemic, every problem, every abuse, every um, expression of human anger, every foolish thing that's here that causes us pain is a result of a world that doesn't believe it needs you. And so we this morning who know you and your kindness seek you. And I pray, Father, you and your kindness this morning would seek somebody who's listening right now and they would go, Lord, I want to know you. Is it possible that I can be your friend? And you would tell them yes in Jesus. And they would acknowledge their sin right now. Lord, I'm a sinner. And they would put their trust in your provision for their sin. And you just simply say, God, I, I know that there's sin in this world. I know there's sin in me. And I thank you for love. And I thank you for the cross where Jesus died for me. And I thank you, Lord, that you proved that the sacrifice of Christ was enough by raising him from the grave with power to show that he was in fact who he said he was. And Lord, I thank you that now Jesus is the one who can extend to us forgiveness and grace and opportunity to know you. And so Lord, we pray that the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God would right now let us know you more. Would you teach us from your word? Thank you because you're living and active and because truth travels across time and place that the truth that you had for your church 2000 years ago in some Greek province can be more than Greek to us. It can be alive and clearly understood and relevant to us. So teach us now. We come to you with an open heart. Show us your way. Conform us to the image of your son that we might be in our blessed state, a blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, 1 Thessalonians, we're in chapter four. Now, you might have heard that we were gonna go to um, uh, down through verse seven or even to verse 12, but I decided not to do that. As we move into what we kind of call Passion Week or Holy Week, we wanted to just focus on what it means to be holy. And we are at a really important place in this book. If you've not been with us, I'm gonna catch you up very quickly, and you're going to see um, why Paul was so thankful for this community. And I'm gonna get to tell you how thankful I am for you. One of the things that happens a lot around here is we celebrate God at work in our midst, in and through his people. And we rejoice at all the things that he's doing. And sometimes people just say, man, you guys talk too much about Watermark. And I, I wanna let you know something. I, I don't really care about Watermark other than um, Watermark is the place that I am being cared for and shepherded where I'm a part of God's family, where I'm admonished and encouraged and helped. 
and where Jesus is doing what he always wants his people and his church to do. And so I care about the church of Jesus Christ. One expression of that is this community of friends called Watermark. And so I love it because it's Jesus's church and where Jesus's church is alive and active, there ought to be really good things and things that cause others to be thankful. And so um, I do often talk about what I see God doing, Jesus doing, the spirit of God doing here. Apart from the spirit of God, we have nothing. There is nothing good that we can do. So when you hear me praise Watermark, you hear me pray Jesus's church, hear me praise the, the truth of God's word worked out in your life, just like Paul did to our friends in Thessalonica. But when we get to chapter four, Paul's gonna say, as awesome as you are, there's work to do. Let's just read it together. Here we go. First Thessalonians chapter four, verses one and two. Paul says, finally, and I love Paul because he's a lot like me. I'm sure before this day is over, I'll just go one more thing I want to throw out to you and then I'll talk for 10 more minutes. <laughs> Paul uh, in Philippians chapter three says, finally, two more chapters. In first Thessalonians chapter four, he goes, finally, two more chapters. <laughs> so finally, then brethren, we request of you and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you had received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, that's where we're going to stop. We're going to pick it up um, after Easter by talking about all the different things that Paul shares with the church in Thessalonica that they ought to be um, excelling still more at. Let me just tell you what's coming. He just says, hey, you should excel still more in your purity, in your love for one another. You should get better as a faithful, hardworking, responsible individual isn't um, flying a sign and asking others to care for you if you have the ability to work. Um, you should have hope-filled grieving. And man, you know, Christians, one of the craziest things about us is if, if the coronavirus or something else leaves us to a moment where we're separated from one another through the grave, we sing at funerals of people who know Jesus. And Paul says, I want you to excel still more in your hope that this world isn't your home and that even the grave doesn't win. I want you to excel still more on um, your readiness for judgment because after the grave, you're resurrected to a moment where you're going to stand before your king. If you don't know Jesus, all you're going to have to give him is your effort to be holy, and that's not going to work out well for you. But if you know Jesus, you're going to stand before him and be judged on how you did as a servant. Not to be dismissed from his presence, but to be blessed and rewarded for your work. It's why we're studying God's word, because when I stand before Jesus, I want him to give me gifts and say, well done. And guess what? I want to take those gifts so I can lay them at his feet and just say, no, man, it was all of you from beginning to end. Every good thing in me was you in me, not me for you, but me dying to myself that Christ might live in me. So Paul says in the end of the book, I, I want you to be ready for judgment and I want you to courageously endure. And I will tell you, by the time we get to chapter five, it's like every other word is something that Paul says, excel still more in this, excel still more in this. It's like rapid fire. You know, when you get down to halfway through chapter five, it's like boom, 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 boom. Stay at it. Now, listen, I can relate to Paul. Uh, I have been told that I am an Enneagram eight. I don't really know what that means other than that people would say that, Todd, uh, it's just natural for you to write 1 Thessalonians chapter four, really um, verse one. Excel still more. <laughs> and uh, I will tell you, I don't know if that makes me an eight, but I am somebody who loves 1 Thessalonians chapter four. But I, I've learned something and been reminded of something because I've been in Thessalonians. Paul waits until he gets to chapter four before he says, hey, come on, man, you can do more. He spent the first three chapters, 15 minutes in his conversation with this church in a written letter that was read out loud to them, 
telling them how much he loved them. And there's a lesson for me. And I think a lesson for you. All of us were, as I said, this is the fourth week we haven't been able to gather uh, in large numbers. Watermark is a very large community now of friends. And so even the first week when they said, hey, you can't have 500 more get together, we, we couldn't meet. And so um, the next week is when they started to say, we'd, we'd love you guys to not have more than 10. And so a lot of communities of faith can't meet. They really want us to stay just with our individual families. And it's hard. I don't care how much you love somebody. Uh, it can be really hard to shelter in place for a long time. Uh, I have been so encouraged. And I want to just start by just saying this. One of the reasons I'm desperate for you to hang in there with me today and learn what Jesus has for you is because the Wagner household has experienced a lot of blessing. And we have not had really one blow up in 21 days of just being isolated. We've had moments of annoyance. Uh, I myself have had to be reminded, hey, dad, that wasn't you know, the best tack to take as you start that thing. Um, I, I want to encourage parents with really young children. I've got seven adults in my household right now. Seven adults. And uh, camp, I'm, I'm giving you a little leeway right there at 16. <laughs> but seven adults and, uh, and one newborn that are, that are living with us. And we at the dinner table the other night just stopped after we ate and just celebrated the kindness of God in our imperfection that we are enjoying one another, we're laughing, um, we're um, all learning things and sharing things and serving one another. And then we actually did take some time after celebrating the grace that's on our family. And I, I offer this to you only to say, this is what Jesus wants for you. We're not perfect by any means. That's why we spent more time after thanking God for his kindness, just sharing some things that every single one of us can do to excel still more. As great as the Wagner household is, and I am thanking God for the Wagner household, it can excel still more. I love Watermark. I love this church. As great as this church is, we can excel still, excel still more. So we went around and we thanked God for things that we saw and we sharpened each other. And they helped me with um, some ways that I could be um, a better patriarch or leader in the home. And literally right through all the adults, we left the you know, four month old alone, but right through the adults, we just sharpened one another and then have hearkened back to that a couple of times since then and say, this is, this is kind of what we were talking about in a spirit of gentleness and with a lack of defensiveness, but just wanting each other to be more of who Jesus wants us to be. So our home, an expression of Jesus' church, can be more of what God wants us to be. This is what Paul did when he was um, talking to the church in Thessalonica. Let me just walk you back through. There's a lesson for us here, and I'm gonna give you the lesson first, all right? Here's the, here's the point that as I reflected on where we were that I came across, and that's it, number one, that lots of encouragement before lots of correction is always the right way to love people. Let me just even put that up on the screen. And as I put that up on the screen for you, lots of encouragement uh, before lots of correction is always the right way to love God's people. Don't freak out right now if you don't get to write all this down. Every single week, we have a, um, a, a sermon study guide or a sermon guide. If you go to our website, watermark.org, you go to messages, you'll see the little, um, little tab up there and click down and you go to the message, you'll see all the scripture I use and we're gonna cover a lot today and you're gonna see points like this that aren't scripture but that are filled with biblical truth for you to meditate on, be reminded of and share with others. So lots of encouragement before lots of correction is always the right way to love people. I'm gonna come back to that second tab that was up there in a moment but let's just focus on this. This is what Paul's already done. Very quickly, watch this. He starts the letter to them by in chapter one, verse two, I love your work of faith. The way that your faith isn't just um, spoken, it's lived out. It goes to work. Your labor of love. Love is hard. I see you laboring, um, straining to love one another. I see your steadfastness of hope. The world 
in Thessalonica wasn't perfect, just like your world, but there's a hope that you should have as a Christian that should make people go, oh my goodness. So first, that's one, three. Look at this. I'm always encouraged by you because of your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. If you jump down to verse six, I'm thankful for the same reason I'm thankful for you, that you became imitators, Paul wrote to this church, of us and the Lord. I see at Watermark so many of you trying to become like great saints of old, purposing to conform yourself into the image of those who can say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So you became imitators of godly people who are trying to become imitators of the Lord, which means you've become an imitator of the Lord. Thirdly, he says, I'm so encouraged because you hear me when I teach and you go, man, Todd's got great insight because Todd doesn't. I don't have the creativity to be a liberal preacher. I'm not trying to make up um, a, a new philosophy every week. I am a steward of the mysteries of God. I'm a servant of Christ and I'm just giving to you God's word and you receive it that way. And because you do, here's the next thing Paul encouraged him about. I'm thankful you're doing so amazing because you're an example in verse seven of chapter one. You're an example to all the churches in the particular region that they um, were a part of, all right? And then look at this. In uh, verse eight, he says, not only have you become an example, but you've become a means through which other people can know the gospel. The word of God has sounded forth from you all around. So amazing. And then when we get to verse nine, we see how you turned to God. Can I just make a note right here? Notice it doesn't say you turn from idols to God. It says you turn to God from idols. There's a reason for that. When you see the beauty of God, all right, you run to him. It's not like you always see um, the futility of body image, the futility of pornography, the futility of, uh, of um, the way that seems right to man. You see the beauty and the kindness of God. It's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. Can I just say this to believers? Stop trying to convince people that they're not happy. Show them the beauty and the perfection of your God. That's what Paul did. He told them about the good news that God isn't looking for man to earn his way to him, but in his kindness and in his beauty, God ran to them. And then the people go, you know what? If there is a God who loves me, who is perfect and holy, who imputes or gives to me his perfection and holiness, who then teaches me his way, who will deliver me from the grave, who will allow me to be a blessing to others that is more enduring than anything in the world, I want to run to that God. Don't try and convince people about the negativity of sin as much as you remind them of the beauty of God. The truth is, most of us have tasted enough of uh, the nastiness of sin that we're hopeful there's got to be more. Paul said these people turned to God from sin. Watch this. Chapter three, uh, chapter two, actually, he says, I thank you that you received the God, again, not as, a, um, as the word of men. In chapter two, verse 13, that's where he says that. Um, you took it for what it really was. Do you see it right there? But for what it really is, the word of God. Paul was thankful for that again. And then again in verse 14, he's repeating now even things he was thankful for. He's coming back. He's saying, have I already told you that you became imitators of God and were such a blessing? What I'm trying to show you right here is that Paul is giving lots of encouragement. And then when you get to chapter three, which we um, looked at last week in verse nine, he says specifically this to them. He says, listen, man, how, how can I thank God enough for all the joy which we rejoice before our God because of you? It's amazing. And then Really, if you even go back a chapter before that, this is what he says in chapter two at the very end. He says, who is my hope and my joy and my crown? It's you, church. It's my family that I see walking in the love of God. And then he sums it up with this. You are our glory and our joy. Man, how many of you guys have heard that? Have you heard that from um, your mom, your dad, your friends? I want you to hear it from me, your, your elder and your pastor, you, church, this is First Thess 2.20, you are our glory and joy. And I'm so thankful for you. I know you're not perfect. That's why there's First Thessalonians chapter four. But let me just start 
by telling you again and again of all the amazing things that I see in your life and I see you doing. And I want you to have more of the goodness of God in his way, which is why we teach here. So the very first application that we have with today's message is lots of encouragement before lots of correction is always the right way to love people. Now, here's what I want to do. Uh, you know, I, I actually said to my sons, I go, hey, guys, do you, do you feel like I do a good job of this? I think a lot of us have heard, you know, this, you kind of need um, five statements of affirmation before one statement of correction. I don't know where that came from. If you follow the scripture, I see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, like 15 before I see one. And I know it's an area that I can myself excel still more. Uh, my kids, I was talking to them about, about this. And I go, can you guys give me a good example of when uh, I, I think I could have um, done a better job of loving you before admonishing you? And I was a little encouraged because they go, no, 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 the perfect example of that, Todd is not, or dad is not in the way you've done it, but um, we, we laughed about a movie that I think a lot of you guys have uh, seen before. It's called Despicable Me. And if you know Gru, he becomes kind of this, evil individual that later, uh, I think, turns for good. But the source of his corruption in his early days was the fact that he didn't get a lot of first Thess 1, 2, and 3. Remember this little scene? He tries to show up before his mom. He says, look, mom. Eh, not so much. <laughs> That's a great movie. Uh, and it's a, a great scene. And you can imagine how that got little Gru all kind of worked up and um, always looking to please mama, all right? So you hear a lot about a father wound that a lot of us haven't heard well done. You have what it takes. I believe in you. We don't want to eh one another. Let me just give you the little second part of this observation. Correction is right when necessary, but encouragement is always necessary. I'm going to just smother you with scripture. They're all going to be listed now uh, in the sermon study guide. And actually in a minute, they're going to roll on the screen when I'm going to give you a chance right now to stop and apply this message. All right. But listen to what the scripture says again and again about encouragement. Here comes just a bunch. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18. There's one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Boy, we don't want to be thrusting our thoughts into people's lives. Paul didn't. He spent three chapters of love before he's saying, this is what you could do better. How about Proverbs chapter um, 12, uh, verse 25? Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down. A lot of anxiety that's out there, right? But a good word makes it glad. When's the last time you gave somebody a good word instead of scolding them for their fear, reminding them of what is true? Um, we see this in Hebrews. It's a verse I quote a ton. Chapter three, verse 13, encourage one another day after day as long as it's called today so that you won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. I want to remind you, I wrote an article the Dallas Morning News published when they asked us about this coronavirus and uh, it being a, a problem for churches to being able to gather together and worship. I said, well, wait a minute. First of all, let's define church biblically and let's define worship uh, biblically. We'll put a link to that article so you can reread it in the sermon study guide. But I just said, listen, the church is in a building. I'm not sitting in the church today. You're the church. This isn't the worship center. This is the worship center. So I talk about Hebrews 10.25, where it says, let us consider how to stimulate one another unto love and good deeds. Watch, not forsaking our own assembly together. That's not Sunday. That's all the time. That's the Hebrews 3.13, day after day. And it's not just every day. It's often throughout the day. And you do it all the more as you see the day of judgment drawing near because we want to be ready to stand before our king. And we want to be useful to our king while we're here. Look at this in 1 Thess chapter 5. Paul's going to say it there in verse 11. Encourage one another. Build one another up. You see a theme in scripture? I do. Look at verse 14 of chapter 5. Um, encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. It's all right there. Look at this. Proverbs 16, 24. Uh, it says there that uh, pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, healing to the bones. 
Proverbs, oh, Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. To build up. That's what the word edification means. A building's called an edifice. And so your words are to be constructing life in people, not taking life from them. Make your tongue uh, the tongue of a disciple. Look at this, Isaiah chapter 50, verse four. The Lord, Lord, give me the tongue of a disciple that I may know how to sustain the weary. God, you who waken me morning by morning, Lord, you who awakens my ear to listen as a disciple, as I listen to you, let me speak words of life to other. Isaiah 57, four kind of takes the other side of that. And it says that people who are not um, faithfully speaking as a disciple or speaking as uh, one who opens wide our mouth and sticks out our tongue. Who does that? Children of rebellion, offspring of deceit. See, the devil, the devil, his name, Satan, means accuser, always accusing people. But here, we're seeing God say, don't be that person, right? Um, If you learn to love like Paul did to the Thessalonians, then you'll have the words of the tongue of the wise. Uh, Proverbs 15.2 says, the tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouths of fools spout folly. Mm, man, that's a proverb I quote to myself all the time, right? And by the way, if somebody's spouting folly at you, you don't return fire with fire, right? We've all heard the statement, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. That's Proverbs 15.2. But you don't fight fire with fire. Hate doesn't get rid of hate. Only love gets rid of hate. That's why Proverbs 15, 1 is there. A gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. My wife and I have, uh, for the last decades, tried to have a rule, which is we can't both be crazy at the same time. (laughs) All right? So when we start having crazy, we don't meet crazy with crazy. You meet crazy with grace. All right? And we just kind of disengage and say, let's go be with a God who's not anything but crazy in his grace. Let's relearn his ways and come back at each other with the tongue of a disciple. Do you see what's happening? Have you been paying attention? There's a spike in abuse, child abuse, spousal abuse, verbal abuse. It's because the world doesn't know God. And if your household is increasing in tension, I'm reminding you, because I love you, and I know you love God, that you can excel still more. And maybe you came into this message and you didn't know God, and you just prayed for the first time that God would forgive you your sins. He's forgiven you. And now, be forgiving and gracious towards others. The grace which you have received, the blessing that you have received, be a blessing to others. Would you just let us know? Would you just email us? You know, um, here, you can just go to our webpage and I think there's an info at watermark.org. Just mail it to info at watermark.org. Just say, hey, I've just trusted Christ. I need some encouragement so I can grow and be a source of grace in my home. One last thing, I just want to talk specifically uh, about leadership in the home. And, um, you know, dads, we have an un... um, uh, or just a disproportionate ability to bring life or to bring death. And so does mom. Proverbs 14.1 says this. It says, the wise woman builds up her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands and her own lips. You want to be a Proverbs 31 woman, not a Proverbs 14.1 woman. A Proverbs 31 verse 26 woman, she opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Um, I love that about my wife, and I love that about God's women. The teaching of kindness is on their tongue. And men, you should be conformed in the image of Christ, and it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. You don't want to be this skank, all right? Uh, Proverbs got a lot of other women in there too, right? So um, Proverbs 21.9, <laughs> it's better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. So why don't you remind your wife that you love her and not just move to the attic? 
all right? This, this idea continues again and again. Proverbs 25, um, 21.19 uh, actually says it this way. It's better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. Proverbs 25, verse 24, it's better to live in the corner of the roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Proverbs 26, 21, like charcoal to hot embers and wood to father, uh, wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. Hey, guys, maybe one of the reasons that your wife is so contentious is because of Proverbs 26, 21, because your life and your lack of leadership is like hot ember and wood to fire that sparks in her a rage that kindles anything but the spirit of God. So we want to be life-giving spirits. That's one of my favorite descriptions in the Bible of who Jesus is. Jesus was a life-giving spirit. That's what the scripture says in 1 Corinthians. And so should we. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take three minutes I'm going to keep putting all those verses about encouragement back up on the screen. And I want you right now, maybe just to turn the folks that are in the room, maybe spend the first minute just praying, okay, uh, about what you should say to be a life-giving spirit and encourage folks with things that you've seen that have been expression of the grace of God. Or if you've already done that with excellence in your house, um, then just text a friend, right? And just let them know, man, I see God at work in your life. I want you to know, I'm proud of you. I'm grateful for you. I see you uh, in so many ways. You're my joy and my crown and my glory. I love Christ in you. So let's not just read our Bible. Let's apply it. Correction is sometimes necessary, but encouragement is always necessary. Take a moment before we excel still more and encourage one another. Okay, I, uh, I, 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 I didn't get any texts, <laughs> but that's okay. No, uh, I, I, I hope you did. And I hope that there are um, many hearts that are refreshed right now. And I hope in grace you're ready for chapter four. <laughs> I, I love you, Watermark. I, um, I last night, I, I went through, I've got folders going back over a decade that I put notes and emails specifically of encouragement in, um, just testimonies of life change and encouragements that I've received. I have letters from Korea and Australia and all over Africa, all over the Middle East, and probably almost every state in our country 
from people that are talking about the work that they've seen in you. In the same way that the Thessalonians were um, a, a, um, a source of encouragement to the whole region, you have been. You, church, are affecting the city. There are thousands of people who are not a part of Watermark who have been encouraged by you. I, I, I think, again, of some of the phone calls I've got, I know um, that one of you, as an example, just saw an opportunity to encourage our medical people that are out there that we want to obviously thank God for. And, and you decided to take them some lunches. And you didn't want to just take them lunches and dinners. You wanted to support local restaurants. So you started to go buy meals at a restaurant, take them to a hospital to feed the medical staff. And then you started to share with other moms in your neighborhood. And then um, it turned into over $10,000. Just this one of you, just with a small network of friends, $10,000 supporting local businesses and supporting local nurses and doctors just caring for them. So great. And your eight-year-old son said to you, why aren't you putting your name on these things? And you said, because I just want them to know they're loved. And the son then said, stop, mom. We don't want them just to know where they're loved. We want them to know God loves them. And so the eight-year-old son, <laughs> way to go, said, mom, let's pray that they know how much God loves them. And let's figure out how to make sure they know this is an expression of God's love. What? So many stories like that. You, there's thousands of people. You're affecting the city. You're affecting this region. I, I, uh, I, I got um, a text from somebody recently that, um, that there are other churches that watch the way that you worship, not just on Sunday, but all around, I mean, all week. We have this thing called Hag Now. Have a great week of worship. Somebody sent me this picture. Look, this is a church in California uh, that you have encouraged that has come and visited here at Watermark. They've heard about teaching people that worship is not just something you do on Sunday. You know, they've got this slide uh, as you walk out into the courtyard, as people leave, as you walk out to the parking lot, as people leave, they are reminding folks, have a great week of worship. That is from your modeling what can happen in a community, how to have a great week of worship. Um, you are affecting hundreds of churches, literally oh, thousands of churches are being spurred on because of your faithfulness. You are affecting the world. Dozens of countries have healthy communities of faith in them um, because of your example. You have two mega churches that are about to launch that came out of your work that have 15 to 20 acres with buildings on it of debt-free property where several thousand people in Fort Worth and in Plano have been discipled, encouraged, spurred on, born out of your work. I mean, come on. I, I just, I mean, this isn't just like we hope it kind of makes it. These are thriving churches that I would love to be a member at and love to go to. Way to go, church. But you can do better. <laughs> You can do better. We can do more. Our best days are ahead of us. We want to make war against sin. Let me just take you back to um, even the very end of 1 Thess chapter 3. Um, I'll start in verse 9, just so I can encourage you again. This is what Paul said. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy? I just, 1 Thess 3, 9, I just told you again about how encouraged I am. Um, that, that all the joy with which we rejoice before God on your account. But he says, in verse 10, but night and day, and we do, we keep praying for you most earnestly that you might complete what is lacking in your faith. Now, this is really important. Um, when Paul talks about what is lacking in the Thessalonians' faith and what I'm about to talk about is lacking in yours and mine is, um, has nothing to do with faith's beginning or even the assurance that God will complete it. Let me say again, what's lacking in your faith, and I want to put the scripture back up there in front of you. In 1 Thess 3.10, Paul says this, I want to complete what is lacking in your faith. That's why I'm telling you in verse four, chapter 4 that you should excel still more. That's why in a minute, I'm going to take you to 11 through 13, what Paul does, because he loves you, what I do because I love you, is I pray for you. When it says you're lacking something in faith, it doesn't mean faith's beginning. It doesn't even mean what your faith in Jesus Christ 
will ultimately accomplish. What it's talking about right there is simply this. This is the phrase that I wrote down to try and explain uh, what saving faith is. Saving faith fully accomplishes, and I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you, and again, don't worry about not writing it down, but it's easier to follow along um, as I say it. Saving faith fully accomplishes God's promise to deliver you to him and is always evidenced by a continuing work that makes you ever more like him. This is what is lacking, okay? A true saving faith justifies you before God, leads to sanctification, and will one day result in glorification. What is lacking is not the justification and not what God himself will accomplish, which is the glorification, but what God is accomplishing. Now notice I said it that way. What God is accomplishing right now with your joining with the Spirit's work by seeking his will and seeking his way and encouraging, admonishing, and helping one another, okay? This again is what saving faith is. Saving faith fully accomplishes God's promise to deliver you to him and is always evidenced by a continuing work that makes you ever more like him. If you don't see in you a desire to know more of God and to be more of what he intends you to be, that is a cause for concern about whether or not you have a saving faith. You might have an intellectual understanding, but the grace, we are saved by grace through faith alone, but the faith which saves is never alone. There's a work of faith, there's a labor of love, and there's a steadfastness of hope that you need the body of Christ to help you and encourage you along the way. It's why Paul uh, came right back around after that and he said, that's why God gave me to you. That's why there are pastors and teachers. No pastor can ever say, my job is done, all right? Uh, you know, I, I don't need to help these folks anymore, um, which is why every good pastor always prays. So here was the prayer of Paul last week. Now may God our Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. Online, together, in communities. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound. There's that idea. Excel still more in love for one another, for all people, just as we also do for you. God's doing a work in Paul so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Chapter four, finally, here's how we're gonna do it. When you get down to verse three, you see this. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you would be increasingly um, more holy, that you would be more of what Jesus wants you to be as his child, that you would grow in grace and knowledge. You're gonna see this idea all the way through the scriptures. Uh, if I had time, and I'll put a link to the verses in John chapter 17, verse 13 through 21, when Jesus himself was with people for three years. Remember, Paul was only in Thessalonica for like four weeks. When Jesus was with men for three years, the last thing he did is pray the same prayer that Paul just did, basically in 1 Thess 3, 11 through 13. Jesus himself pouring himself in ways that we don't even get that kind of time into the lives of others ended in John 17, 17. And again, the whole prayer for Jesus in John 13, um, John 17, 13 through 21 has this work. But in John 17, 17, he says, God, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Because as you sent me into the world, verse 18, I I'm gonna send them into the world. This is what's so crazy. Jesus says, for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also might be sanctified in truth. I'm not gonna unpack all of John 17 and verse 19 and what it means. We taught through the gospel of John. You can go get that message and what Jesus meant at that particular moment. But let me just say this. It's why we teach God's word because the word of God is what's going to produce in us um, more of what God desires to be in men and women so we can be bright and shining stars in the midst of a dark and perverse generation. So we can have the contagion of Christ so the kingdom of God can live in us and people can go, 
My, how you love one another. My, how the teaching of kindness is on your tongue. My, how you are clothed with strength and dignity. My, how your families, when they're sheltered in place, are a place of blessing. My, how when you gather, are you not filled with petty differences and conflict? We have to make war against sin. When we invite sin into our life, we are, um, uh, well, let me just read it to you this way. Um, I, I, every now and then, I, I come across, you know, different guys who have been sanctifying people in truth for a long time. I read them because I want to learn how I can serve you better. And um, you know that um, there was something about men that lived in the 19th century, uh, J.C. Ryle, Charles Spurgeon, guys like that, that I, I sit at their feet and I learn from them. And, and Spurgeon said this, he says, I can't trifle with the evil that killed my best friend. I must be holy for his holy sake. How can I live in sin when he died to save me from it? I can't say I love God and then keep polluting my heart with things that are inconsistent with the character and nature of God. If I believe that he died for me, then I'm not going to take moments when I'm alone in my room and run to things that caused him to suffer. I can't trifle with the evil that killed my best friend. Paul is just encouraging us to take seriously um, our commitment. I'm going to read this same next quote uh, in a couple of weeks when we talk about the first thing that he admonishes us to be excellent in our sanctification. But watch this. I love this. Um, this is true. This is why you've got to watch. If you've got trouble growing in your heart, it's, if something's alive, it's because you're feeding it. Lustful thoughts, um, disgust with others. Um, if you are coveting somebody else's family and somebody else's wife, somebody else's husband, somebody else's children, what the enemy will do is he will just feed you lies. And I love this statement by, again, Spurgeon. He says, when Satan cannot get a great sin in, he will let a little one in. Like the thief who goes and finds shutters all coated with iron and bolted inside, at last he'll see a little window in a chamber. He cannot get in, so he puts a little boy in. And that he may go round and open the back door. So the devil has always got his little sins to carry us about with him, to go and open the back doors for him. And we let one in and say, oh, it's only a little one. yes but how that little one becomes the ruin of the entire man. I mean, that's just good writing is what that is, all right? And so I share it with you. It's why we make war against sin and we sanctify ourselves. Watch this. I love what, what Paul, when Paul gets to this place in chapter four and he says, finally, brethren, it's a very humble statement. Paul's not saying, I'm not better than you. I'm one of you. I need to be sanctified. I need to grow still more. I request. That is a, um, it's a humble statement. It's not Paul on his own authority scolding them and yelling at them. He's just saying, look, I'm a, I'm a guy and I need your help. It encourages me when I see you excel still more. It encourages me when I see more of Jesus in you. I want more of Jesus in me. And I exhort you. Let me just give you a little Greek because Greek so is, is uh, the language that First Thessalonians was written in. Um, the word for um, exhort is parakletos, which uh, uh, paraklete is a name for one who comes alongside to help, all right? So um, a paragraph is uh, one little bit of writing that comes along other bits of writing that make a whole story, right? So a parakletos is one who comes alongside to call or to help. And it's the name in the scripture for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our paraclete. And he reminds us and he whispers to us and he illumines God's word and he sanctifies us in truth as we spend time with the word that the Holy Spirit gave us, it moves us more towards him. And that is why when we speak to one another, we counsel biblically because the word of God is what will not return void. And so we share and remind each other of things that are true. Paul says, I'm just a guy and I'm gonna just say, as a guy, I wanna ask, would you help me? And I'm gonna come alongside of you and encourage you to be more. That you in Christ. Now watch this. When the scripture says, and I want to read it to you again in 1 Thess 4.1, finally, my brethren, 
we request and come alongside and exhort you who are in the Lord. That's the phrase there. Your flesh is always going to want to let the little boy in the chamber door. Your flesh is always going to want to do things that caused, um, that killed your best friend. Don't get discouraged that you're tempted and that your flesh doesn't want more of God. That's what your flesh is always going to want. But by faith, it's no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. And the spirit which says, Todd, follow me, not your own way. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge me. That spirit, that truth is the one that will cause you to um, grow and to receive the instruction of God. Do you see that? You, in the Lord Jesus, you as a Christian, not you as a man or a woman with a will to do good, but you who had taken up your cross, which means dying to yourself, and following Jesus, that's how you can grow. That's the people that want to receive instruction as to how you ought to walk. This is first that's 4-1 now. How you ought to walk and please God, just as so many of you already are, that you would excel still more. Now, verse 2, okay? This is my request as a man. I want to encourage you, but the Holy Spirit has commanded you. This is not an option for a Christian. For you know what commandments, the scripture says, we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Listen, I love you guys. As another man, I'm just saying, hey, I, I, I need your help. I, wanna, I want you to come alongside me and help me. But listen, let's just be really honest. There is a sovereign king and we're his subjects. There's a commander in chief and we're in his army. There is a master and we are his servants. And he has commanded us to seek his will. And this is the will of God, our sanctification. People always ask about what the will of God is. And um, you like, like it's some mystery that's out there. And I want to tell you, there's a few places in scripture where it just flat out tells you, this is the will of God. And one of them is right here in 1 Thess 4.3. The will of God is your sanctification, that you would become more and more like Jesus every day. And that doesn't happen just because you want it to. It happens because you persevere. It happens because you excel still more. It happens because um, you continue by faith, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You set your mind on the things above. Um, one great 18th century speaker said, it's by perseverance that the snail reached the ark. <laughs> and, and, and perseverance is, um, is the hard work you do after you get tired of all the hard work you've already been doing. Church, you have been doing a lot of hard work, but persevere in godliness. Persevere in humility. Persevere in love. Persevere in diligence of studying the scripture, in gathering together, in encouraging one another, in sanctifying your body in honor and not letting a little boy in by jumping on websites that aren't good for your soul. All right? I would leave you with this. Don't worry, all right? This speaks about the will of God now. Don't worry about what the will of God is. Like, I gotta know what's God gonna do with my life, right? Worry that you will do with your life what is God's will. Don't worry about when you're gonna marry. Don't worry about what God's gonna have you doing next week. Worry that what you do with your life is God's will. God's will is your sanctification. Don't worry about the will of God. I'll say it to you one more, way, one more way. Don't worry about the will of God for your life. Concern yourself with God's will. And God's will is that you discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You don't grow weary in doing good. You know that we're thankful for you and praying for you, but you get after it. <laughs> and you excel still more. So watermark, 20 years of faithfulness, man. It's amazing. Eh. <laughs> eh. No, I, I, I can't say aunt. I just say, at a boy, at a girl church. But let's go. Let's go. Uh, you guys know we're writing some songs. We're going to actually um, debut a couple of fun new songs next week for Easter. But a song that we wrote uh, not long ago just captured this idea, um, which is a, a statement that you know, I've said uh, for some time. 
which is, if you don't want to know more of God, I just don't think you know him yet. If you don't want to be more like Jesus, you just don't know who Jesus is yet. How could I want anything more but more than Jesus? Right? So, if a man doesn't want to know more of God, it's doubtful he really knows him at all. You want more of God? I know I do. And so keep praying for me and spurring me on.